Bible most often refers to eternal life in the present tense, we need to quit thinking of eternal life as something we will inherit in the future. This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. We are in the middle of a series called What's So Great About Salvation? We have learned that in salvation, we are saved from the penalty of our sin, judgment, and death. But that is not the complete story. Today, Tori Bjorklund, president of TRC Ministries, continues his teaching by giving an introduction to three things we are saved to, life, authority, and community. Here is Tori with What's So Great About Salvation, part four. We're in the middle of a series, so if you're just joining us, you'll be lost. But no, I try to do this self-contained unit here. I will allude to some of the things that I've talked about previously. And when I do that, I will try to explain well enough. We've been talking about salvation. Last week we covered what what is the gospel. And my assertion is that because we have taken our inferences and placed them into the scriptures, we often have an idea that was not the intention of the speaker. And we have done that about gospel we saw last week, and we talked about what the gospel is. And, um, and this week, we're going to return back to the idea of what is salvation. And if you might remember, we started out, we broke down those quest- the question of salvation into several questions. And the first one was, from what are we being saved? That's one of the concepts of salvation. And then we talked about what is the gospel of salvation, and today... We're going to talk about to what have we been saved. And one of the kind of a local person in Minneapolis that's well known to a lot of people is John Piper. And if you know that doctrinally he and I are not necessarily in great alignment, but in this statement I think is very relevant to our topic today. And uh, I wanted to point this out. We're going to talk about to what have we been saved. And as John Piper said, there is nothing in itself that makes forgiveness of sins good news. Whether being forgiven is good news depends on what that forgiveness lead to. And and a good example of that, by the way, is if we're forgiven of our sins, but then we sin again, does it just keep happening? If it never happens again, if it's a one-time thing, It wouldn't seem so great because what good would that be? And so this idea of what does that forgiveness lead to, in my opinion, is the most important issue of salvation, unfortunately, the least talked about. So I talked about this a couple weeks back. I did a Google search. You know, it's in my industry, uh, in the software industry. You know, some people refer to Google as the infallible Google. It's really just a matter of finding things. But what you do find, one of the things that Google does, it ranks things based on the most common sites that are visited. And so if you do a Google search on something, unless they've paid money to Google to get it to hire up, you'll see the things that are most commonly visited. And so I did a Google search on the gospel of salvation. And one of the things that I saw as I read through the articles is that to answer the question of to what have we been saved is very difficult to do 
by reading the articles. So if I read the first two articles as an example, the only thing that I found was a vague reference to God working in your heart to make you like him. Now that could be a good thing, but it was a very short blurb and exactly no information about what it meant or how he did that or anything. But the entire article was about forgiveness of sins. And that's where it ended. And there was also one other thing mentioned in the second uh, article about being sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. We sang about the day of redemption and today, and that is definitely something to look forward to and something to which we are saved. The question that I want to put forward is, do we wait until that day in order to realize the purpose for which we have been forgiven? that to which we have been saved. Well, I read the first couple of articles, and then I thought, well, okay, those are the most common articles. Let's go on down a ways. And, and I started scanning. I call it speed skipping. Naomi calls it speed reading. And I started scanning the different articles. And as I went down there, I noticed one that mentioned the purpose for salvation. And it's about the third or fourth article down, the purpose for salvation. But then they got into 2 Timothy 1, 8, and 9. And, and we'll maybe just take a quick look at that. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And by the way, by referencing these things, I don't want to say that this is incorrect information. The, the information that we're being provided with in these articles is correct, but I want to use them in the most common articles to make the point that we have taken our inference and placed them into the gospel, and we have missed a significant point of the speaker. We've missed, and what I, I will assert today, we missed the main point. And we're going to get controversial today probably, and I don't want to get controversial for the sake of controversy, but I want to challenge your thinking. And I want to give you something that will inspire you beyond the inspiration of forgiveness, which is a great thing. I'll come back to that. Okay, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us, and the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. I read that verse, which was referenced as the purpose for which we were saved, and I thought, okay, if I'm an uninitiated person trying to, you know, read through articles on the internet about salvation, what would I get from that? Well, I would get that there is a purpose, okay, his own purpose, but suffering for the sake of the gospel is not something that is typically put forward as good news. And the thing that I want to point out is that well, first I want to say, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant here. And as I say, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to denigrate the articles and the people that wrote them. But what I want to point out is that when we are presenting the gospel as good news, it seems reasonable that we ought to be able to at least say what that good news is. What's so good about it? So I think Jesus really understood this. Now, what was last week we, we went through the term gospel. What was Jesus' gospel? 
the kingdom of God is right here, right at hand. You can reach out and grab it. The kingdom of God is right here. And the kingdom of God is available. Now, being the master teacher that he was, he spent a significant amount of time teaching about the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God was his gospel, then naturally he would want to address what's so good about the kingdom of God. Why would I want to reach out and grasp the kingdom of God? Why would I want to seek the kingdom? Remember he said, seek first the kingdom of God. Why would I want to seek these things? I understand why I want to seek food. Remember that? He contrasted seeking the kingdom of God with what? Food and clothing and some basics. We can relate to, to seeking that. Why would we want to seek the kingdom of God? So this is why Jesus spoke in ways, for example, in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. You remember that one? What happened? That when the kingdom of heaven was like a treasure and somebody discovered that treasure, and what did they do? They sold everything they had and they went and bought it. I remember, by the way, hearing a message on this. And I came away with the feeling like, if I were that person that discovered that, I'd be like, oh, do I have to give up smoking or whatever it is? You know, do I really have to give up this stuff in order to obtain the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? Do I really have to? You know, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. I think Jesus was saying, in light of the kingdom of God, there ain't nothing else worth pursuing. You'd say, get the, here, let's sell this stuff. Let's get out of, get rid of this stuff. It's standing in the way of getting what we truly desire to have. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And he discovered a pearl of great value. So what did he do? Sold everything. Get this. You might want this stuff. You go ahead. You can buy it. All I need is the means to obtain what I've found. Nothing else matters anymore. Nothing else is of any value to me any longer in light of this. Jesus spoke the gospel of the kingdom of God being available to people and said, this is something you want. This is what it's like. It's the kind of thing for which you would not bother seeking anything else if you knew this was available. Nothing else would get in the way. So what is so good about salvation? What is it that is the good news? And do we proclaim this when we start talking about salvation? So let me give you three things, okay? I'm going to cover one of these three today, and in the next sessions, we'll cover the other two. But I want to start off with an assertion here. The three things to which we are saved permeates and is the main theme throughout the entire Bible. These three things. And I want to see if we can identify what, some, what these are. So let's take a quick glance at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 30, says this. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky 
and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you and every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And we're going to jump over to chapter 2. This is the more detail, drilling down into the detail of God creating man in his image. Verse 7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just going to jump to 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. By the way, so if you're following this, like I said, it's drilled in to, in, in a little deeper detail. Earlier on we, we read how God created man and woman in his image. That's the overview. We're getting into the details now of what, the sequence of that, that how that actually occurred. And I'm gonna I'm just gonna jump over here. He created and he brought all these animals to Adam, and Adam and God were engaged together in naming the animals. And so we we find in uh, verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. I'm just going to end there, but what did we notice there? Just think about it for a second. I'm going to have us jump to the last part of the Bible. There's three things that God makes clear which is part of his purpose for man. And, I, and my assertion is those three things permeate the entire Bible. We're going to look at the beginning. We're going to look at the end. We'll look at one in the middle. So Revelation chapter 21. This is the bookends of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21. We see now, verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth. So this is John speaking about his vision, his revelation. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. We've been talking about that today. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. 
And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. I love that verse. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the land shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him, and he shall see his face, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night. They shall not have a need for a light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. There's some similarities there. If you read that carefully, you've probably noticed that. I want to look at Jesus' prayer here before we pick these things apart and try to get into the details. John chapter 17. We read this as the high priestly prayer, the intercession of the Son of God for man, for his disciples and for those who will, be, who will believe because of their word. That's us. Verse 1 through 3, I just want to point out here, Jesus speaking, saying, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I'm just going to jump to verse 20 through 26. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that's us, and that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me, and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me here, where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou dost love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and I have known, and, and these have known that thou dost send me, and I have made thy name to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou dost love me may be in them, and I in them. There's a lot more verses, and you can write these down if you want. Matthew 25, we're aware of that passage. Um, there's two very interesting passages there, by the way, the, the parable of the talents, and then right after the parable of the talents, you have the account of the, the uh, judgment. And uh, Romans 8, 10 through 17. We're not going to read all of these. John 14, 23, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, 1 John 2, 24. If you want to write these down, you can see some of this. Can you see anything that seemed to be a consistent theme in those verses that we read? The beginning, the end, Jesus' prayer for his disciples and those who believe through their word? Life. Life. 
the tree of life, the water of life, the knowledge of God as life. And by the way, where does life come from other than God? I mean, in our experience, we receive life when we are conceived and are born. And this is why Jesus spoke of this life with Nicodemus in the form of an additional birth, a birth from above. Life is the primary thing that God wanted to give mankind and continues to want to give man. Anything else that you notice? Dominion, reigning. Did you see that in Revelation, by the way? They reign with him forever. Do you remember, if you, if you think about Matthew 25, what did he say? He separated the sheep from the goats. He said to the sheep on his right, Come thou blessed of my father. What? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Over and over again, we see the invitation for us to rule and reign as a governor, if you will. Think about the two different parables of talents, the one where he gives one, one five, and ten, or something like that, and one, two, and five. What is it that happened to those who were faithful? They were given more. And, and then he says, I will put him in charge of many things. Place he talks about putting people in charge of ruling, and not just the money, but of being able to rule. You remember what Paul said to the Corinthians when he said, when they couldn't settle their own disputes? He said, don't you know you're going to be, what, judging angels? We don't, we don't know what that looks like. That's something we, we have a hard time comprehending. But this idea of reigning, of ruling, of having dominion, having a kingdom under which we submit to God's kingdom. We take our kingdom and place within the kingdom of God, within the rule and reign of God, so that we do what? We rule with him. We reign with him forever and ever. One of the things that's shocking to me, when you read John 17, for example, will you notice all the ins? How many different ins did you see there? You lost track of them. Okay, let's, let's count them. Jesus was in the Father. The Father was in him. We can be in Jesus. We can be in each other. Did you, see, did you catch that one? Well, we're in the world, yes. We're, that was another in. And we are in the Father, well, in us, Jesus said. So the first thing I want to point out is we have an invitation. This is a big part of the gospel to come into, to join in union the Godhead, to commune with the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. This is something that was experienced throughout the Bible in various ways, but today, through what we focus on, the death and resurrection of Christ, these are the things, and this union, this community, this divine community, is available for us to interact with. Life, authority, and community. Now, 
We don't have time to drill into each of those today. We probably barely have time to get into life uh, to the degree that I wanted to. But do you see that? And if you just, just reel through your head some of the verses as you go through, I mean, the prophets, for example, you know why? You know why the Jewish nation missed the Messiah when he came? Because they misunderstood what authority meant. They had a clear message that authority would be restored to the children of Abraham when the Messiah came. They didn't see it happening. But what did Jesus tell his disciples before he sent it into heaven? All authority has been given unto me. They missed it because of the inference that they put into the words of the prophecies. Now, if you go back to prophecies and you say, wait a minute, where is the authority? You will see that it is the authority of the Son. It is the authority of the Messiah. It is the authority of the Christ that comes to the people. And it was throughout the entire Old Testament. You will see the concept of community over and over again. And, of course, you will see life over and over and over again. So what is salvation? We talked about what is the gospel. We've talked about from what we have been saved, the rescuing. Now we're talking about to what we have been saved. And let me make a statement here. I believe salvation is to be made alive spiritually by receiving the very life of Christ and experiencing all the reality that that life offers. I'm going to say it again. Salvation is to be made alive spiritually. This is life. By receiving the very life of Christ and experiencing all the reality that life offers. One of the unifying truths among Christians of all doctrinal persuasions is that mankind is spiritually dead. Unless you're you know, basically on the fringes of cultism, all Christian believers... All, even those who claim to be Christians that we might question, believe that man is spiritually dead. The thing that we argue about, unfortunately sometimes even fight about, is what that means. Generally speaking, we will all say, as Paul did in Romans 3.23, that we have all sinned. And sometimes we try to divide it down to saying, well, we are dead at conception, or we are dead at the first time we sinned. But, you know, so just let's leave that as an open question for a minute and say, at some point, we are all dead, and we all agree on that. And we are all dead because of sin. We all agree on that. All have sinned. We all agree on that. Okay? So we don't, at least today, need to get into, you know, the dividing of hairs in, in, that, in that matter. But the idea of spiritual death, obviously, if we can kind of understand that, will also help us understand the idea of being made spiritually alive. So the Bible uses two words in the Greek language for life, by the way. By the way, it, also two words in Hebrew, obviously, they weren't the same language, but they correspond pretty well. And uh, I don't know Greek, but I have these wonderful tools that allow me to do searches on, on these words. And um, so I want to help you understand this a little bit by sharing what I've learned. Okay, we see this word, it kind of looks like psyche. In the Greek, you have the pronunciation up there, I tried to put it on there, yeah. Soke. 
It's the closest, I don't know, suke. But this word basically means the existence of an individual human being or an animal. That was what the Greek word meant. That's how they understood it. And this, this wonderful word, sentient life. I had to ask my wife several times, how do you say that again? I remember seeing this word, but we could think of that as basically being sentient life, which sentient means to be able to perceive or feel things. So that's one word. The other word, zoe, is the pronunciation, if, you, if I follow the pronunciation guide. But basically, you could think of this as vitality. Okay? The substance of life might be another way of looking at that. So if we think about these words and we think about their meaning, and if we go back through and just do a concordance search, for example, of the word life, you will find that you can, you can place that, based on the context, just reading it, you will very easily place them into one of these buckets. Now, first looking at it, maybe it doesn't seem that it's that easy to identify, but let's, let's just look at a couple of quick examples, and, and I won't go into, into all of them. So here we go, Matthew 6.25. Uh, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, is that vitality or is that the existence of a person? That would be the existence. That right there is suke, soke, however you say it, okay? So that's, your existence is more than clothing and food, okay? Well, it might not be all that, let's grab, a, let's grab another one. John 1, 4, 1, 4, in him was life, zoe. You see the difference? So let me, let me try to put this in... Um, some terms that we can understand. Back in the late 40s and, 50, and early 50s, there was a TV show on. And that TV show was, this is your life. This is your life. And it would, in this show, go through a biography of, of somebody. And they would be on this show, and they would see people from their past, would come on their show. You know, you, you know, in second grade, had a crush on your teacher. Miss Anderson. Miss Anderson today is now Mrs. Johnson, and she's here with us. And, you know, it was, they'd go through this thing. Your life, that was this, this suke. But when you say that somebody got so disappointed by something, it just sucked the life out of them. We're talking about Zoe. Metaphorically, of course. Okay, so these concepts are important for us to, to grab hold as we start reading through the scriptures and saying life is what God wants to give us. So what is Zoe? Because that is the life that we're talking about. We're not talking about getting a life, like get a life. We're talking about having spiritual vitality. I've talked about this from the past. Those that are familiar with my teaching are familiar with teleonomy. Teleonomy is zoe. Teleonomy is the quality of apparent purposefulness. This is a Wikipedia definition, by the way. Apparent purposefulness and of goal-directedness of structures and functions in living organisms. Okay? 
It's what distinguishes a living organism from a dead organism. We saw earlier, this last one, 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. You could say, he who has teleonomy has the life. He who does not have teleonomy does not have the life. This is in sci the scientific terms. So what is, what is teleonomy? What does that mean? Well, basically, we're all familiar with photosynthesis. And so when the sun comes in, there is an apparent purposefulness and goal-directedness. By the way, it's because of the naturalism and that is inferring this term here that uh, says it's apparent purposefulness. But there's a system that takes that sunlight and converts it into something usable for that plant. And that plant has a way to store that and, and so forth. This is a system. It's a teleonomic system, okay? And so when this plant is functioning as it should, and the teleonomy and the teleonomic systems are working, that plant is said to be alive. When it's, those functions are not working, that plant is said to be dead. The same is true with animals. The same is true with humans in the physical realm. Okay? One thing I want you to notice, though, that this explanation of life does not actually tell you what life is, does it? What does it tell you? It tells you how to observe it. It doesn't tell you what it is. What is life made of? We don't know. You see, when science wants to tell you they understand everything about life, they're lying. They have no idea what it is. There, there's, it mysteriously quits working sometimes. The, the teleonomy is not there, and they can say, yep, we identify it. The RNA quits running up and down the DNA and doing its thing. Why? Well, I don't know. Was there a substance not a, that, that we could observe? We don't know what life is. We only know how to recognize it. And this is what Jesus taught Nicodemus. Do you remember that? Remember, what did, what did he say to Nicodemus? He said, Nicodemus is like, I'm really lost here. You're talking about, you know, being born. I can't go back into my mother's womb and get born again and stuff like that. And Jesus said, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's not saying that we're going to whisk around like Philip did. That, you know, we don't know where he came from and where he's going. What he's saying is that the recognition of spiritual life is something that you can observe, but you can't explain it as it's this substance. You can't break it down into its essential elements of, you know, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, or something like that. All we can do is identify the fact that it exists, not what it is, not the substance of it. So you don't see this life with your physical eyes, but you can observe its presence from the impact that it has. You can recognize in yourself the functioning of this eternal kind of life that comes from a birth, through a birth from above. So when the Bible says that a person is spiritually dead or dead in sin, what that means is that person does not have the functioning spiritual systems necessary to interact with a spiritual and eternal reality. When a person is spiritually dead, 
When the person is lacking zoe in a spiritual sense, they don't have the functioning systems to interact with an eternal and spiritual reality. They're dead to the heavens. <laughs> Just like when you're asleep and you're dead to the world. You're not interacting with what's going on around you. Spiritually speaking, without the zoe that comes from God through Jesus Christ, we're not interacting with the spiritual world around us. We have no teleonomic systems at work. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. That's what happened, by the way, to Adam and Eve. And eventually they also physically died. But on the day which they ate that fruit, they ate from that tree, their teleonomic spiritual systems quit working. And you see where it went from there. That's what it means, by the way, what I think it means when it says that man is dead in his sins. To be spiritually alive then would mean to be able to benefit from the spiritual resources because you have the proper functioning spiritual systems. You're spiritually alive. You can take the resources that are coming from the spiritual atmosphere, as you will, if you will, and you can utilize that in a way that causes growth. This is spiritual aliveness or spiritual life. Now, I want to say that when the Bible's talking about this life, it's not speaking metaphorically. These spiritual systems of that are operating are as real as your metabolic system. We're not talking about a metaphor here. And as a matter of fact, what I would assert is that our physical life and the way that we operate is more a metaphor of the spiritual reality than the other way around. And that's why I love Dallas Willard. He said, salvation is an invitation to be interactively joined with a dynamic, unseen system of divine reality in the midst of which all humanity moves about, whether it knows it or not. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Salvation is an invitation. That's the good news. It's an invitation to something, to something. What? To be interactively joined with a dynamic, unseen system of divine reality. It's as real as this piece of metal. It's unseen, however. And we are moving about in the midst of that divine reality. If we don't have the life, we don't join in that reality. If we have the life, we join in that reality. Now, when I read that statement, I don't know if anybody else thought about this, but my mind immediately went to that poem that Dave introduced me to from Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I mean, just think about this. There is this reality, this unseen reality, that all of humanity is moving around in. It's surrounded by. That's, by the way, what, what was meant by the kingdom of heaven, not way up in the sky. They understood heaven to be the atmospheres in, in which the birds fly, the birds of the heavens. All around us is this reality. We have been invited to be joined with it, whether we know it or not. We don't know whether, I mean, before we were spiritually alive, we don't know 
about this reality. We don't join in it and, and, and interact with it. So I love that it brings me to this Elizabeth Barrett Browning poem that says what? Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes and the rest sit around and pluck blackberries. I love, you can't see this picture very well, but on this little blade of grass is dewdrops, and in each dewdrop is some kind of a, I don't know what it is, but it, it's colorful. Some reflection or some pollen or something, it's a reflection of something, it's just beautiful. Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes, and the rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Elizabeth Barrett Browning is asserting something here that is biblical. If we do not have eyes to see, as it were, we completely miss the reality with which the earth is crammed. We'll have more to say about spiritual senses in upcoming session. However, contrast this idea with what is typically meant by eternal life in Western Christian teaching. As Wikipedia put it, if you look up the uh, eternal life, you do a search, Google search on eternal life, the first thing that comes up is Wikipedia, and it says in it, in Christianity, eternal life traditionally refers to continued life after death. And this is what I found, by the way, as I read those articles about the, the gospel of salvation. The Holy Spirit, I mentioned, was given to us as a seal, as a promise of the eternal life that we will receive. That's not what I read in the Bible. He who has the Son has the life. There is a promise, and the Holy Spirit is a, is a seal of that promise. So, I want to contrast this idea that we are living in a world that is surrounded by a reality that we are invited to interact with. And it is a reality of the truth of God. The Bible most often refers to eternal life in the present tense. We need to quit thinking of eternal life as something we will inherit in the future. It's one of those preconceived inferences that we place into the Bible due to our Western Christian influence, cultural influence. So we already don't have a lot of time. I want to just wrap up here with a couple of verses that I want to point out to you here. As an example, Romans 6, 22 and 23. Okay, I'll read that real quick. Romans 6, 22 and 23. You're probably familiar with this passage. Here's what it says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you hear, you hear a message on that, you read a book or an article that talks about that, it basically is saying, in the end, we will obtain eternal life. That's the way that verse, those verses are generally interpreted. If we also look at Romans 8, 11, so I'm going to read that one to you as well. It's just a couple pages over. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. What we hear when we read that, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, the resurrection. Hallelujah. But let me ask you a question. If Paul is speaking of the resurrection here, why does he use the word, the term mortal bodies? At the resurrection, we receive the immortal bodies. What body is he talking about? The one we have now. The one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give to our body that we have today that same life. He would not call it a mortal body if he was referring to the resurrected body. But that's a detail that we easily miss because we infer our idea of eternal life. All right, let's go Colossians 2.12, just, and I'll read it for us, but here's what it says. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This is the raising that he's talking about. Though you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he made you alive together with him. You notice that past tense? He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. What's the main subject here? He's made you alive. What was part of the means of that? Forgiving us our transgressions. Forgiveness is a means to an end. The end is life. That's what we are being saved to. And so when we read, for example, in, in Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 5, it talks about if you've been united with Christ, then you will also, I'll just read it real quick so we've got it. Romans 6, 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. The reason he's speaking in a future tense here is because he's using logic. We're united in death, then it follows also in his resurrection. He's not speaking of a future time to come. He's speaking in the tense of logic. If this is true, then it follows that this also will be true. Okay, here's my main point that I want to say. When we think of salvation as being forgiven, and rescued from the penalty of our sin so that we can go to heaven when we die, we miss the entire point of salvation. So I want to say that again. When we think of salvation as being forgiven and rescued from the penalty of our sin so that we can go to heaven when we die, we miss the entire point of salvation. We have been saved in order to share the same kind of life that God has in himself. Naturally, of course, there is the sin issue that needs to be addressed, but that is simply one of the many details that God dealt with in order to make his life available to mankind. I think I've got to stop there. I want to pray, that, pray a prayer over us. Heavenly Father, I see in your heart that you have communicated to us through Christ Jesus that you desire for us to have life and that be overflowing with life, to have life that splashes on people, to have it in abundance. And I pray that we would get a vision, each one of us individually here this morning, those listening 
to the recording would get a vision for that life in us that we would that we would see it as the treasure that it is and that everything else would pale in comparison that we would be so overwhelmed by that life that the things of this world will indeed grow strangely dim and that we would experience the reality of this physical world as Jesus did, being more aware of the reality in which this world is placed that supersedes everything that we taste, touch, smell, hear, and see. We see Jesus. May we hear his words. May we taste of him that he is good. May we interact with you and your kingdom in a way that transforms the way that we interact with this world. And I ask it for Jesus' sake, in his name, amen. Thanks for listening in today. Our vision at TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the church using the resources of the kingdom of God. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.